Disc 19. Like the others, the pound had a narrow band of values against the mark, its own airspace, as it were, which it had to keep to, as it swept through the turbulence and storms caused by the international money markets. Once it had chosen its entry rate, the value in marks that sterling would try to maintain, the government's only steering mechanism was interest rates, plus, at the margin, protestation. What was the point of this? Dangerously, that depended on your vantage point. For Major and his government, the point was that because the German Central Bank had a deserved and ferocious reputation for anti-inflationary rigour, having to follow or shadow the mark meant Britain had purchased a respected off-the-shelf policy. Sticking to the mighty mark was a useful signal to the rest of the world that this government, after all the inflationary booms of the past, was serious about inflation. On the continent, the point of the ERM, however, was entirely different. It would lead to a strong new single currency. So, a policy which Mrs Thatcher had earlier agreed to, in order to bring down British inflation, became a policy Lady Thatcher abhorred, because it drew Britain towards a European superstate. Confused? So was most of the Conservative Party. Thus, the bomb was prepared. What happened to set it off was that the US dollar began to fall because interest rates there were being cut and pulled the pound down with it. Worse, the money flowed into Deutschmarks, which duly rose. So the lead aircraft was gaining altitude just as the pound was plunging. The government raised interest rates up to an eye-watering 10% to try to lift the pound. But this did not work. The obvious next move was for the Germans to cut their interest rates, lowering the altitude of the mark and keeping the ERM formation intact. This would have helped not just the pound, but other weak currencies such as the Italian lira. But Germany had just reunited after the downfall of communism. The huge costs of bringing the poorer East Germans into West Germany's embrace meant a real fear of renewed inflation and all those Weimar memories. So, the Germans... Heedless of the pain of Britain, Italy and the rest, wanted their interest rates high. Major begged, cajoled, warned and wrote stiff letters of protest to Chancellor Cole, who would not move. He warned of the danger of the new Maastricht Treaty failing completely, for the Danes had just rejected it in a referendum and the French were now having a plebiscite of their own. None of that cut any ice either. In public, the British government insisted the pound would stay in the ERM at all costs. The mechanism was no mere technicality. It was Major's anti-inflation strategy. Ever since, as Chancellor, he had told the unemployment-hit and house-repossessed British that if it isn't hurting, it isn't working, his credibility had been tied to the ERM. But it was his foreign policy, too. British membership of the ERM showed the country was serious about being at the heart of Europe. It was Major's big idea for Britain's economic and diplomatic survival. Norman Lamont, who as Chancellor was as apparently committed as Major himself, told the markets Britain would neither leave the ERM nor devalue. It was at the centre of our policy, and there should not be a scintilla of doubt. Major then went further, telling an audience in Scotland that with inflation down to 3.7% and falling, it would be madness to leave the ERM. The soft option, the devaluer's option, the inflationary option would be a betrayal of our future. But he could hold out for not much longer.
The lira crashed out of the ERM formation. The international money traders turned their attention to the weak pound and carried on selling. They were betting Major and Lamont would not keep interest rates so high the pound could remain up there with the mark. An easy, one-way bet. For in the real world, British interest rates at 10% were already painfully high. On the morning of Black Wednesday, at 11am, the Bank of England raised them by another two points. This would be agonising for homeowners and business alike. But Lamont said he would take whatever measures are necessary to keep the pound in the system. The sense of panic mounted. The selling went on. A shaken Lamont rushed round to tell Major the interest rate rise had not worked. But sitting in Admiralty House, Number 10 was being refurbished after the IRA mortar attack, Major and his key ministers decided to stay in the poker game. The bank announced that the interest rates would go up again by three points to 15%, which, if sustained, would have caused multiple bankruptcies across the country. This made no difference either. Eventually, at 4pm, Major phoned the Queen to tell her he was recalling Parliament. The government cracked. At 7.30pm, Lamont left the Treasury with his closest advisers, including David Cameron, to announce to a throng of cameramen and bystanders in Whitehall that he was suspending the pound's membership of the ERM and was reversing the first of the day's interest rate rises. Major wrote out his resignation statement for broadcast. It was the most humiliating moment for British politics since the IMF crisis of September 1976, 16 years earlier. If Major had actually resigned, Lamont would have had to go as well. The country would have lost the two senior ministers in the middle of a terrible crisis. So Major decided to stay on, though he was forever diminished by what had happened. Lamont, always a bubblier and more resilient figure, better suited perhaps to the Regency than the fag end of the 20th century, announced that he had been singing in the bath after the ERM debacle, and later added to the insouciant impression by quoting Edith Piaf's song, Je ne regrette rien. He decided that he was delighted as the economy began to react to lower interest rates, and the slow recovery began. While others could only see endless sleet and frozen mud of unemployment, repossession and bankruptcy, he was forever spotting the green shoots of economic rebirth. Perhaps it was the twitcher in him. Keen bird watchers are alert to nature. In the following months, Lamont created a new unified budget system and took tough decisions to repair the public finances, but as the country wearied of recession, he became an increasingly easy butt of media derision. A few trivial incidents combined to make him something of a laughing stock. To Lamont's complete surprise and utter shock, Major sacked him as Chancellor a little over six months after Black Wednesday. Lamont retaliated later in a common statement. The government listened too much to pollsters and party managers, he said. We give the impression of being in office, but not in power. It was a well-aimed and painful blow. Major appointed Kenneth Clark, one of the great characters of modern Toryism, a pugnacious, pro-European, beer-drinking, jazz-loving, one-nation brawler, to replace Lamont. Though Lamont then moved increasingly towards full-on Euro-scepticism and never forgave Major, these three unlikely musketeers were jointly responsible for the strong economy inherited by New Labour four years later. As to Major himself, his stony road just got flintier and steeper. In the Commons, the struggle to ratify the Maastricht Treaty, hailed as such a success before the election, became a long and bloody one, conducted in late-night cabals, parliamentary bars and close votes night after night. 
Major's small majority was more than wiped out by the number of anti-Maastricht rebels, egged on by Lady Thatcher and her former party chairman, Norman Tebbit, now also in the Lords. Black Wednesday emboldened those who saw the ERM and every aspect of European federalism as disastrous for Britain. As John Major later wrote, it turned a quarter century of unease into a flat rejection of any wider involvement in Europe. Emotional rivers burst their banks. Had not the Germans let us down again? And had lower interest rates and green shoots of recovery not followed Britain's self-expulsion? If the ERM had been bad, so surely was the whole federal project. Most of the newspapers which had welcomed Maastricht were now as vehemently against it. The most powerful conservative voices in the media were hostile both to the treaty and to Major. Lady Thatcher's new oppositionism echoed loudly through Westminster. Principle, peak and snobbery swirled together. Major's often leaden use of English, his resolute lack of panache or cool, led many of England's high Tories to brand him shockingly ill-educated and third-rate for a national leader. His own sensitivity to criticism and occasional exhibitions of self-pity simply made things worse. He lacked that layer of nerveless flesh leaders today require. The story of the long progress through Parliament of the Maastricht Bill during the autumn, winter and spring of 1992-93 is too convoluted to be recorded here. Suffice it to say that a constantly shifting group of around 40 to 60 Tory MPs regularly worked with the Labour opposition to defeat key parts of their government's main piece of legislation, and that Major's day-to-day -day survival was always in doubt. Whenever he called a vote of confidence and threatened his rebellious MPs with an election, he won. Wherever John Smith's Labour Party and the anti-Maastricht rebels could find some common cause, however thin, he was in danger of losing. The rebels ranged from the most fastidious and high-minded MPs who were profoundly worried about the constitutional damage European Union would do an ancient parliamentary democracy to the mischievous and the embittered. Some backbench rebels found that they were interviewed constantly on television. Their views were sought by the papers and they became very minor national characters. This can be, as the current author witnesses, dangerously intoxicating. In the end, Major got his legislation, and Britain signed the Maastricht Treaty. But it came at appalling personal and political cost. Talking in the general direction of an eavesdropping microphone, he spoke of three anti-European bastards in his cabinet, a reference to Michael Portillo, Peter Lilly, and John Redwood. The country watched a divided party tearing at itself, and the country was unimpressed. By the autumn of 1993, Norman Lamont was speculating aloud that Britain might have to leave the European Union altogether, and the financier Sir James Goldsmith was preparing to launch his referendum party to force a national plebiscite. The next route to break was over the voting system to be used when the EU expanded, a murky matter of realpolitik which directly affected each country's leverage. Forced to choose between a deal which weakened Britain's hand and stopping the enlargement from happening at all by vetoing it, the new Foreign Secretary Douglas Hurd went for a compromise. In Parliament, once again, all hell broke loose. Tory rebels began talking of a challenge to Major as leader. This subsided briefly, but battle began again over the European budget and fisheries policy. Formal membership of the Tory party was withdrawn from eight rebels. By now, Smith, who had given Major some of the worst parliamentary moments of his life, had suddenly died and had been replaced by Tony Blair.
When Major readmitted the rebels, the young opposition leader told him, I lead my party, you follow yours. As with Lamont's, in office but not in power, this caricatured the dreadful dilemma Major was in. But, like Lamont's remark, Blair's struck a chord with the country. The Age of Major while the central story of British politics in the seven years between the fall of Thatcher and the arrival of Blair was taken up by Europe, at home the government tried to continue the British Revolution. After many years of dithering, British rail was broken up and privatised, as was the remaining coal industry. After the 1992 election, it was decided that over half of the remaining coal mining jobs must go, in a closure programme of 31 pits to prepare the industry for privatisation. This depressed or angered many Tory MPs who felt the strike-breaking effect of the Nottinghamshire-dominated Union of Democratic Mine Workers deserved a better reward, and it roused much public protest. Nevertheless, with power companies moving towards gas and oil and the union muscle of the miners broken long since, the sale went ahead two years later. Faced with a plan by Michael Heseltine to sell off the post office too, Major balked. It was a service with the stamp of royalty on it and a long tradition. His refusal was probably good for the country. Why? Because the privatisation of the railways was a catastrophe. There has long been a problem with some politicians and railways. Perhaps it was all those Hornby models in boys' bedrooms or attics. Perhaps it was the simple romance of an industry which has beauty and complexity, which appeals to the mathematically minded in the structuring of its timetables, and to romantics in its engineering. At any rate, fiddling with the railway system became a dangerous obsession of governments of different colours. Thatcher, not being a boy, knew that railways were also too much part of the working life of millions to be lightly broken up or sold. She is said to have told Nicholas Ridley when he was Transport Secretary, Railway privatisation will be the Waterloo of this government. Please never mention the railways to me again. Yet just before she resigned, under pressure from a Treasury privatisation unit with too little left to do, she began to soften, and rail privatisation was taken up by John Major with gusto. Trains! What could be more fun? Was not old-fashioned, curled, sandwich-serving, rail-accident-prone British rail a national joke? Could not any reforming government worth its salt, brimming with nostalgia for the old days of brightly painted trains run by private companies, do better than that? The problems with selling off an elderly, loss-making railway system on which millions of people depend are obvious. If your first aim is to raise money, then you have to accept that fares will rise briskly and services may be cut, as the new owners try to make a profit. This will make you less popular. If, however, your aim is to increase competition, just how do you do that? Each route has only one railway line. Different train companies can hardly compete directly, racing each other up and down the same track. Do you give up on competition and sell off all of British Rail as a single unit? The Conservatives decided against that, which left them essentially with two options. They could cut up BR geographically, selling off both trains and track for each region together, so that the railway system would end up looking much as it had in the 30s. Competition would not be direct, but it would become clear that, say, the great north-east operator was offering a pleasanter and more efficient service than the company running trains to Cornwall and Devon, and in due course one might lose and the other gain market power. Licences could be revoked, or there might be takeovers. Alternatively, the railway could be split vertically, 
so that the state owned the track, some companies owned the stations, and others the trains. This could be called the complete Horlicks option. Under Treasury pressure to produce the maximum competition and revenue, the new Transport Secretary, John McGregor, chose it. A vastly complicated new system of subsidies, contracts, bids, pricing of almost everything, cross-ticketing and regulation was created. Topped off when, late in the day, it was decided to sell off the nation's railway tracks separately to a single private monopoly to be called Rail Track. Suddenly, to get across the country could become a complicated transaction involving two or three separate train companies. They would not, however, be left to get on with it in a new market. Trains were too important for that. A franchise director would be given powers over the profit and pricing, including ticket prices, of the new companies, and a rail regulator would deal with the track. Both would end up reporting directly to the Secretary of State so that any public dissatisfaction, commercial problem, safety issue, indeed almost everything, would be back in the lap of the politicians. If this was privatisation, it was a strange and possibly pointless one, which would end up costing the taxpayer far more than old-fashioned, much-mocked British Rail. The historian of this curious tale, Christian Woolmar, dubbed it the poll tax on wheels. The writer Simon Jenkins, who had sat on the British Rail Board, concluded, The Treasury's treatment of the railway in the 1990s was probably the worst instance of Whitehall industrial mismanagement since the Second World War. Citizens and Hoop Jumpers As a Brixton man, who had known unemployment, and as a sensitive man, quick to feel slights, Major was well prepared by upbringing and temperament to take on the arrogant and inefficient quality of much so-called public service. In his early years, he himself had been the plaintive figure who found telephones answered grudgingly or not at all, booths closed while customers were kept waiting, remote council offices where, after a long bus journey, there was no one available to see you who really knew about the issue, anonymous voices and faces who refused to give you a contact name. He was making a good point. Why, in a country that spent so much on public services, were so many of them so bad? The answer of the Thatcher revolution was that in the end, only the market is properly responsive. Yet nobody in power during the 80s or 90s, including Margaret Thatcher, was prepared to take this logic to its limit and privatise the health service or schools or road system, compensating the worse off with vouchers or cash help. Nor, under the iron grip of the Treasury, was there any enthusiasm for a revival of local democracy to take charge instead. This left a fiddly and highly bureaucratic centralism as the only option left, one which we have seen gather momentum in the Thatcher years and which would flourish most extravagantly under Blair. Under Major, the centralised funding agency for schools was formed, and schools in England and Wales were ranked by crude league tables, depending on how well their pupils did in exams. The university system was vastly expanded by simply allowing colleges and polytechnics to rename themselves as universities, and a futile search began for ways in which civil servants might measure academic merit and introduce league tables there. The hospital system was further centralised and given a host of new targets. The police, faced with a review of their pay and demands by the Home Secretary, Kenneth Clark, for forces to be amalgamated, were given their own performance league tables. The Tories had spent 74% more in real terms on law and order since 1979, yet crime was at an all-time high, as a doleful list of high-profile murders reminded the public. Clark's contempt for many of the police as vested interests was not calculated to win them round to reform. 
Across England and Wales, elected councillors were turfed off police boards and replaced by businessmen. Clark's hostility to local control had been confirmed by his time as health secretary when, according to one department insider, he showed himself as a leading exponent of the Stalinist side of the Tory party. He castrated the regional health authority chairman. In 1993, Clark defended his new police league tables in language that was eerily echoed by New Labour later. The new accountability that we seek from our public services will not be achieved simply because men of goodwill and reasonableness wish it to be so. The new accountability is the new radicalism. Accountability. Once the word had implied a contest of ideas and achievements played out in front of the voters. Now it meant something very different. Across the country, from the auditing of local government to the running of courts or the working hours of nurses, an army of civil servants, accountants, auditors and number crunchers marched in. Once, long ago in the 1940s, Labour had been mocked for saying that the man in Whitehall knew best. Now the auditors and accountants hired by Whitehall ruled instead. Weekly, from time to time, ministers would claim that the cult of central control and measurement had been imposed by Brussels. Some had been, but this was mostly a homegrown superstate. Major called his headline policy the Citizens' Charter, though he himself did not like the name very much because of its unconscious echoes of revolutionary France. Every part of government dealing with public service was ordered to come up with proposals for improvement at grassroots level, to be pursued from the centre by inspections, questionnaires, league tables and ultimately the system of awards, charter marks for organisations that did well. Throughout, Major spoke of empowering teachers and doctors, helping the customer and devolving. He thought his great system of regulation from the centre would not last long. It was a regulatory goad to raise standards. Over time, I anticipated formal regulation steadily withering away as the effects of growing competition are felt. But how would this happen? In practice, the regulators grew more powerful, not less so. If people are paid to respond to regulators' targets and jump through hoops, they become excellent at target practice and hoop jumping. This does not make them wise administrators. Despite the rhetoric, public servants were not being given real freedom to manage. Elected office holders were being sacked. Major's hopes for central regulation withering away echo Lenin, who hoped for a withering away of the Soviet state, with similar success. Small Wars, Big Questions in December 1993, John Major stood outside the black-painted, steel-armoured door of Number 10 Downing Street with the affable Taoiseach of the Irish Republic, Albert Reynolds. He declared a new principle which offended many traditional conservatives and unionists. If both parts of Ireland voted to be reunited, Britain would not stand in the way. She had, said Major, no selfish, strategic or economic interest in Northern Ireland. Thus, a long strand of Tory thinking, which was that the party was dedicated to the United Kingdom, consciously and proudly biased in its favour, was torn up. There was more. If the provisional IRA, which had so lately bombed the very building Major was standing in front of and murdered two young boys in Cheshire, renounced violence, it could be welcomed into the sunlight as a legitimate political party. In the run-up to this Downing Street declaration, the government was also conducting top-secret back-channel negotiations with the terrorist organisation. The provisional IRA leadership proved slippery and frustrating, but in August 1994 they declared a complete cessation of military operations. 
which, though it was a long way short of renouncing violence, was widely welcomed. It was followed a month later by a loyalist ceasefire, a complicated dance of three-strand talks, framework documents and arguments about the decommissioning of weapons followed. The road to peace would be tortuous, involving many walkouts and public arguments. On the streets, extortion, kneecapping and occasional murders continued. But whereas the number of people killed in 1993 had been 84, the toll fell to 61 the following year and 9 in 1995. The contradictory demands of Irish republicanism and unionism meant that Major failed to get a final agreement, even on paper. That was left for Tony Blair, unfinished business. But Major's achievement was substantial. He was a good peacemaker. And he made a dramatic bid for peace at home. In July 1995, tormented by yet more rumours of right-wing conspiracies against him, Major reposted with a theatrical coup all of his own, one his music-hall father would have applauded. He resigned as leader of the Conservative Party and invited all comers to take him on. He told journalists gathered in the sunshine in the Number 10 garden it was put-up-or-shut-up time. If he lost, he would resign as Prime Minister. If he won, he expected the party to rally around him. This was a risk, for there were other plausible leaders. One was Michael Heseltine, who had become Deputy Prime Minister and who loyally supported Major. Another was Michael Portillo, then a pin-up boy of the Thatcherite right, whose supporters prepared a campaign headquarters for him, but who decided against standing. In the event, the challenger was John Redwood, the Welsh secretary, known to many as the Vulcan because of his glassy, extraterrestrial demeanour, but a highly intelligent Thatcherite. At a catastrophic press launch of his campaign, he was surrounded by a celebratory, luridly dressed collection of supportive MPs, swiftly dubbed the Barmy Army. Major won his fight, though not gloriously. In the end, 109 Tory MPs failed to back him. Nevertheless, in a clever political operation, victory was swiftly declared, and he lived to be defeated finally by the real electorate two years later. By then, defeat had been made inevitable by the self-destructive European war of the previous years. Major was also a cautious war-maker. Blair would inherit not only the Northern Irish peace process, but also the bubbling ethnic wars breaking out in former Yugoslavia, following the recognition of Slovenia, Croatia and Bosnia as independent states in the early 90s. The worst violence followed the Serbian assault on Bosnia and the three-year siege of its capital, Sarajevo. The term ethnic cleansing was heard for the first time as woeful columns of refugees fled in different directions. A nightmare which Europeans thought had vanished in 1945 was returning, only a couple of days' drive away from London. Major asked his military advisers how many troops it would take to keep the sides apart and was told the answer was 400,000, three times the total size of the British Army. He sent 1,800 men to protect the humanitarian convoys that were rumbling south. Many British people proved ready to collect parcels of food, warm clothes, medicine and blankets, which were loaded onto trucks and driven south by volunteers. A London conference tried to get a peace deal and failed. This new war went on, even nastier. Many in the government were dubious about Britain being further involved. But the evening news bulletins showed pictures of starving refugees, the uncovered mass graves of civilians shot by death squads, and children with appalling injuries. There was a frenzied campaign for Western intervention, but what kind? In the United States, President Clinton was determined not to risk American soldiers on the ground, 
but a swelling of outrage about the behaviour of the Serbs persuaded him to consider less costly alternatives, such as airstrikes and lifting the arms embargo on the Bosnians. This would have put others who were on the ground, including the British, directly in the line of fire when the Serbs retaliated. There were rows between London and Washington. Hideous attacks in Sarajevo, notably a mysterious mortar strike at the market, finally provoked the NATO airstrikes. In response, the Serbs took UN troops hostage, including British soldiers who were then used as human shields. The Serb capture of the town of Srebrenica was followed by disgusting slaughter and renewed demands for full-scale military intervention. It never came. After three years of war, sanctions on Serbia and the success of Croats in fighting back, a peace agreement was finally made in Dayton, Ohio. Major was the first British Prime Minister of the post-Cold War world, grappling with what the proper code of the West should be. The Balkan Wars, a result of the fall of communism, showed perfectly the dangers and limits of intervention. When a civil conflict is relayed in all its horror to tens of millions of voters every night by television, the pressure to do something, to separate the sides and succour the suffering, is intense. But mostly this requires not air attacks, but a full-scale ground force, which will be drawn into the war, and must be followed by years of aid and rebuilding. Will the same voters be happy to keep paying and keep accepting the casualties that follow? Major and his colleagues were accused of moral cowardice and cynicism in allowing the revival of fascist behaviour in one corner of Europe. This was nobody's finest hour. Yet Western leaders were wary about whether their voters would have accepted a full-scale war and the thankless neo-colonial responsibilities that would follow. They may have been right. A very English coup. Tony Blair was an establishment figure, more so than Thatcher, Major or Smith. He had been a mild teenage rebel, worn his hair long, broken school rules and imitated Mick Jagger in a rock band. His father had been brought up by a communist on Clydeside and had suffered an early and severe stroke, which brought his children uncertainty and a bump down in the world. Far more importantly, though, Blair was the son of a Tory lawyer and went to a preparatory school in Durham, then the grand fee-paying boarding school Fetis in Edinburgh, then Oxford University and then the bar, before becoming an MP. There was more Gothic architecture in his early history than in most volumes of Pevner's Architectural Guide. Though he rebelled, the lessons of politeness, deference and a quiet knowledge about where power lay were in place from the start. Gifted with a natural charm, infectious good humour and a great skill in acting, he was a young man whose seriousness and principle were also evident. His father's stroke had happened when he was still young. He lost his adored Irish-born mother when he was a student and turned increasingly to religion in its activist, not contemplative form. Much ink has been spilled about why he joined the Labour Party rather than the Conservatives. It's not a ridiculous question. Falling for a young Liverpudlian socialist called Cherie Booth sharpened his politics, but he had joined Labour before he met her. There is a widespread belief that it was mere calculation. In the early 80s, the Tories were awash with bright lawyers looking for seats and political careers, while Labour seemed on its last legs. If you wanted to get into the Commons and then rise, Labour offered an easier, if riskier, route. While this is possible, joining Labour at its lowest ebb would show uncanny prescience for a pure careerist. 
The likeliest explanation is simply that he believed in political action, and that, though flawed, Labour's belief in social justice was nearest to the Christian social views he had formed. Once in the party, working his way through local branches in London, he displayed the full kit of soft-left beliefs of the time, being hostile to the European community and privatisation, pro-CND and high taxes, the rights of illegal immigrants and greater freedom from the press. He would ditch all of these views later, but this does not mean they were insincerely held at the time. For the Labour Party of Foote's time, they were considered moderate, and Blair was always opposed to the hard-left Benite and militant groups. After fighting a hopeless by-election, Blair won a safe Labour seat in the north-east of England with his combination of chutzpah and charm, and, in the Commons from 1983, quickly fell in with another new MP. Gordon Brown was much that Blair was not. He was a tribal Labour Party man from a strongly political family who had barely glimpsed the crenellated English establishment which produced Blair. Brown had been Scotland's best-known student politician and a player in Scottish Labour politics from the age of 23, followed by a stint in television. Yet the two men had some things in common. They were both Christians, and they were both deeply impatient with the condition of the Labour Party. For seven or eight years they seemed inseparable, working mostly from a tiny, windowless office they shared. Brown tutored Blair in the darker ways of politics, treating him like a sweetly naive kid brother. He would learn. Blair was also a vital sounding board for Brown, however, teaching him what the mysterious English middle classes might be thinking. No working relationship in politics was closer. Brown summed it up in 1991. I think Blair could well be leader of the party after me. Together they made friends with Westminster journalists. Together they matured as Commons performers. Together they shared their frustration about older Labour politicians. Together they worked their way up the ranks of the Shadow Cabinet. Then Blair began to pull ahead. After the 1992 defeat, he made a bleak public judgment about why Labour had lost so badly. The reason was not complicated, but simple. Labour has not been trusted to fulfil the aspirations of the majority of people in a modern world. As Shadow Home Secretary, he began to try to put that right, promising, in words borrowed from Brown, to be tough on crime and tough on the causes of crime. His response to the horror of the 1993 murder of the toddler James Bulger by two young boys, which provoked a frenzy of national debate, was particularly resonant. In general, Blair tried to return his party to the common-sense language of morality. He drank deep from the mix of socially conservative and economically liberal messages used by the great communicator Bill Clinton and his team of New Democrats. So too did Brown. But he had a harder brief, since as Shadow Chancellor his job was to demolish cherished spending plans and say no to Labour MPs. Brown's support for the ERM meant he was ineffective when Major and Lamont suffered their great defeat. The Brown and Blair relationship was less close than it had been earlier, but it was still strong. Together they visited the United States to learn a new political style from the Democrats. Awkwardly for Brown, it relied heavily on leadership charisma. At home, Blair pushed Smith aggressively over reforming the party rulebook, falling out with him badly. Watching media commentators and some Labour MPs begin to tip him as the next leader, Brown's team began to ask whether Blair was now manoeuvring and briefing against his old mentor. It was a grim time for Brown, and he did not bother to reach out or show a sunny side. Slowly, but perceptibly, Brown Blair was turning into Blair Brown.
The days after John Smith died have produced more analysis and speculation than almost any short period in modern British politics. But the basic story is clear. Blair decided almost immediately that he would run as leader. Brown, perhaps more grief-stricken than Blair, or perhaps more cautious, hesitated. But he had assumed he would inherit, and when he heard Blair's plans, he was aghast. In at least ten face-to-face meetings in Edinburgh and London, the two men argued. On Blair's side were opinion polls showing him much more popular, the support of greater numbers of Labour MPs, and a greater backing in the press. This was not all a plot by Peter Mandelson, as Brown people later claimed. It was a widespread assessment come to independently by many people who disagreed about other things. Crucial to the case for Blair was that he was a well-spoken Englishman who would reassure those parts of the country which were the main electoral battleground. On Brown's side were his deeper knowledge of Labour, stronger support among the unions, and his more thought-through policy agenda for change. Had the two fought each other, given Labour's complicated electoral college, it is impossible to say just what would have happened. Blairites say their man would have crushed and humiliated Brown. Brown's people reply that his formidable campaigning skills would have taken the Metropolitan Blairites by surprise. On only one subject were they both agreed. For the two modernisers to fight would be disastrous. Personal attacks would be impossible to avoid. If Brown had any hope of winning, he would have to attack Blair from the left. So Brown came to a deal, culminating in a notorious dinner at the chic, now defunct Islington restaurant, Granita. Some sense of the cultural gap between the two men can be drawn from the fact that Brown had to go and have a proper meal afterwards. Again, the outcome is much disputed, except that Blair acknowledged Brown's authority over a wide range of policy which he would direct from the Treasury, including the social justice agenda. Did he also promise to limit his prime ministership to seven years and then make way? It would be an extraordinarily arrogant thing for one opposition politician to say to another. The Conservatives would be in power for years yet. But, probably, some form of words about a transition in power was exchanged if only to salve Brown's hurt. Looking back many years later, it can be seen that the true significance of the Granita deal and the meetings that preceded it was that it gifted Britain's mightiest government department, the Treasury, even more power than it had in the Conservative years. Blair would be, as Prime Minister, more concerned with foreign affairs than he could ever have guessed, and Brown's Treasury would become a grand department for British affairs, beyond its Mandarin's wildest dreams. Gordon Brown would be the Treasury's final victory over George Brown. The Killer Cows of Old England John Selwyn Gummer, a devout Christian and environmentalist, was one of the nicest men in British politics. On a sunny May morning in 1990, he paraded his daughter Cordelia before the cameras in Suffolk and tried to persuade her to eat a beef burger. The four-year-old Cordelia was nobody's fool and absolutely refused. Gummer quickly swallowed his embarrassment, and then the cooling burger too, pronouncing it absolutely delicious. He was, of course, trying to make a political point. There was rising disquiet about a mysterious and unpleasant disease of the brain found in cattle, which caused them to stagger, fall over, and expire. It was called BSE, for bovine spongiform encephalopathy. The disease was being found all across Britain at the rate of 300 cases a week. The Ministry of Agriculture, Fisheries and Food, with Mr Gummer at its head, 
was more the department of farmers than the department of shoppers, and it discouraged alarm about the new disease. Could it be spread to humans? At that stage, the answer was no. Still, because it seemed to be spread by the use of mashed-up cow offal in feed, a kind of grisly if unwitting cow cannibalism, new rules were put in place. Farmers were told to destroy BSE-infected cattle. Gummer's stunt was intended to show how safe British beef, even in beef burgers, now was. Prior to Cordelia's rejected burger, cow brains, spleen, tonsils, and gut had already been banned for human consumption. But the problem would not go away. Among those refusing to eat British beef were the Germans, some schools, and a majority of doctors. Various other animals, including a cat, a cheetah, and a monkey, died of BSE. By the mid-90s, the government was spending tens of millions on compensation for farmers who were burning or burying their dead cattle. The line that humans could not contract the brain disease was beginning to crumble. Victoria Rimmer, a teenager from North Wales, was dying of Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, CJD, which was closely related to BSE and said to have been caused by eating infected beef. More human cases were reported from, amongst others, farmers, butchers and people who'd had blood transfusions. It began to be clear that many slaughterhouses were not following the new rules and that some BSE-infected cattle still ended up for human consumption. The EU started to take a close interest. In March 1996, ministers admitted that a new form of CJD had been found in ten people, of whom eight had died, and that this was probably due to BSE being in food. There was, rightly, an eruption of anger, and the credibility of the department was questioned. British beef was banned by the EU. New rules about the deboning of beef before it was eaten were introduced, and a massive programme of slaughtering all cows over 30 months began. Beef on the bone was off the menu, and parts of the British countryside were studded with oily pyres of swollen dead corpses, an unappetising spectacle. The slaughter was extended to 147,000 animals, but Europe remained steely, and extended the ban to exported British beef outside the EU as well. Mad cow disease became as emblematic of the end of the Tory years as union militancy or punk rock had been of the late 70s. The government's anger was mainly directed at continental Europe, seen as gleefully exaggerating the lethal infection in the roast beef of Old England in order to sell their own meat. Yet the anger might have been as profitably directed elsewhere to the farming-dominated government department that had acted slowly, the farmers who had refused to report the full extent of the disease, the sloppy slaughterhouses, and, in general, a form of industrial farming that fed dead cows' brains to cows, apparently heedless of whether this was nice, safe, or healthy. The science was still sketchy, and the media was hysterical, but government and industry were to blame as well. The Sword of Truth For British voters, the major years were remembered as much for the sad, petty and lurid personal scandals that attended so many of his ministers, after he made an unwise speech remembered as a call for old-style morality. In fact, back to basics referred to almost everything except personal sexual morality. He spoke of public service, industry, sound money, free trade, traditional teaching, respect for the family and law, and a campaign to defeat crime. Back to Basics, however, gave the press a fail-safe headline charge of hypocrisy whenever ministers were caught out, and caught out they were. 
a series of adulteries exposed, children born out of wedlock, a sex death after a kinky stunt went wrong, rumours about Major's own affairs, truer than was realised, though the press had the wrong person, and then an inquiry into whether Parliament had been misled over the sale of arms to Iraq, were knitted together into a single pattern of misbehaviour, which got an old name, Sleaze. In 1996, a three-year inquiry into whether the government had allowed a trial to go ahead against directors of an arms company, Matrix Churchill, knowing that they were in fact acting inside privately accepted guidelines, resulted in two ministers being publicly criticised. It showed that the government had allowed a more relaxed regime of military-related exports to Saddam Hussein even after the horrific gassing of 5,000 Kurds at Fallujah and revealed a culture of secrecy and double standards. Other sleaze-related stories were more personal. One of the more flamboyant Thatcherite MPs, the bow-tied and flippant Neil Hamilton, was accused of taking cash in brown paper envelopes from the owner of Harrods, Mohammed Al-Fayed, to ask questions for him in Parliament. In a libel case which followed, he vociferously denied this, but lost the action and was financially ruined. Jonathan Aitken, a Treasury Minister was accused of taking improper hospitality from an Arab business contact. He resigned to fight the Guardian over the claims with the simple sword of truth and the trusty shield of fair play, was found guilty of perjury and served 18 months in prison. There is no logical link between a minister who forms improper links with a sexual partner and a minister who forms improper links with a businessman. Never mind. All of this was expertly packaged together by the new Labour opposition, working closely with the media. In the late 90s, sleaze was as ubiquitous and smug a word as spin would be later. It set the tone of the times. One of the more dramatic episodes in the 1997 election was the overwhelming defeat of Hamilton in his Tatton constituency by the former BBC war reporter who had been badly injured at Sarajevo, Martin Bell. Clad in his familiar white suit, helped by a decision to stand aside by the Labour and Liberal Democrat candidates, and advised by the Labour spin doctor Alistair Campbell, Bell succeeded in overturning Hamilton's enormous majority, emerging with an 11,000 majority of his own. He became Britain's first independent MP for nearly 50 years. It is worth recalling that there was a time not so long ago when it seemed that white suits, if not swords of truth, would cleanse British politics. By the end of Major's government, it seemed that some lessons had been learned about politics in Britain, broadly defined. The European Union was perilous, a potential party splitter. Their single currency was as toxic as our beef. There was a mood of contempt for politicians. The press had lost any sense of deference. Busy reforms directed at the health service, police and schools had produced surprisingly little improvement. The post-Cold War world was turning out to be nastier and less predictable than the days of the peace dividend had promised. And finally, when your luck turned, it turned dramatically. There was, in all this, material for a thoughtful and wary opposition to reflect on. How might the country be better governed? What was the right British approach to peacekeeping and intervention now that the United States was the last superpower left standing? How could the promises of an end to cynicism be fulfilled? But by 1997, New Labour had no time to reflect on all that. It was moving in for the kill. Team Tony
The 1997 general election demonstrated just what a stunningly effective election-winning machine Tony Blair now led. New Labour won 419 seats, the largest number ever for the party, and comparable only with the number of seats from the 1935 national government. Its majority in the Commons was also a modern record, 179 seats, and 33 more than Attlee's landslide majority of 1945. The swing of 10% from the Conservatives was yet another post-war record, roughly double that which the Thatcher victory of 1979 had produced in the other direction. A record number of women were elected to Parliament, 119 of them, of whom 101 were Labour, Blair's babes. The party also won heavily across the South and in London, in parts of Britain in which it had recently been hardly represented. Yet among this slew of heart-stopping statistics, which had Blair shaking his head with disbelief and exclaiming, it can't be real, there were some small warning signs. The turnout was very low, at 71% the lowest since 1935. Labour had won a famous victory, but nothing like as many actual votes as the reviled John Major had won five years before. Still, as the sun came up on a jubilant, celebrating party, there was much wet-eyed rhapsodising about a new dawn for Britain. Alistair Campbell had assembled crowds of party workers and supporters to stand along Downing Street waving Union Jacks as the Blairs strode up to claim their inheritance. Briefly, it looked as if the country itself had turned out to cheer. The victory was due to a small group of self-styled modernisers who seized the Labour Party and then took it far further to the right than anyone expected. The language used tells its own story. New Labour was to be a party of the left and centre-left, then one of the centre-left, then the centre and centre-left, and in Blair's later years simply of the centre. Blair was the leading man in this drama, but he was not the only player. He needed the support and encouragement of admirers and friends who would coax and goad him, rebuke him and encourage him, and do his will, whether he knew what they were up to or not. Who were they? There was Mandelson, the brilliant but temperamental former media boss, by now an MP. Once fixated by Gordon Brown, he was adored by Blair and returned the sentiment. Yet he was so mistrusted by other members of the team that his central role in Blair's leadership election was disguised from them under the name Bobby, for Bobby Kennedy, working to Blair's JFK. Modesty was never a hallmark of the inner circle. There was Alistair Campbell, Blair's press officer and attack dog. A former journalist, natural propagandist, ex-alcoholic and all-round alpha male, Campbell would chew the ears off everyone who criticised Blair and help devise the campaign of mockery against Major. He behaved in private towards the Labour leader and on one occasion was filmed doing so with the cheery aggression of a personal trainer working over a nervous young housewife. There was Philip Gould, a working-class boy whose admiration for US political techniques knew no bounds. He would bring his focus group expertise, his polling and ruthless analysis to the party. There was Derry Irvin, the rotund, intimidating, brilliant and surprisingly sensitive Highlands lawyer who had first found a place in his chambers for Blair and Cherie Booth. He advised on constitutional change and would become Lord Chancellor. And there was Angie Hunter, the contralto charmer who had known Blair as a youth and who remained his best hotline to Daily Mail reading Middle England. These people, with Brown and his team working almost alongside them, 
formed the Inner Core. The young David Miliband, whose father was a famous Marxist political philosopher, provided research help. They would be joined by Jonathan Pohl, a diplomat who had been observing the Clintons in the United States, and whose older brother Charles had been one of Thatcher's most important aides. By the end of the Blair years, with so many others fallen by the wayside, he was undoubtedly the second most important man in Downing Street. Among the MPs who were initially close were Marjorie, better known as Mo Molam, and Jack Straw. The money for Blair's leadership campaign was raised from a clutch of mainly media millionaires, including Greg Dyke, later Director General of the BBC, and Michael Levy, a record promoter who would later be ennobled and later still face a police investigation and arrest on corruption charges. The first striking thing about Team Blair is how few elected Labour politicians it included. The second is how many of its original members would later fall out with him. He had a capacity to charm and pull in people whom he needed, and then to drop them briskly once they were surplus or embarrassing. Blair had won 57% of the vote in the leadership election, easily beating two more left-wing candidates, one of whom, John Prescott, was elected as his deputy. In his campaign, Blair had stuck mostly to generalities about modernisation and the instincts of the British people, but had sounded approving of the regime of centralised testing and quangos the Conservatives had pursued in public services. To that extent, people had due warning. By the time the party congregated again for its annual conference, the Labour Party had become New Labour. In his first conference speech, Blair made a veiled reference to the need for an up-to-date statement of Labour values. What he actually meant was that he planned to scrap Clause 4 of its constitution, which declared that public ownership of the means of production, distribution and exchange was necessary to secure for the workers by hand or by brain the full fruit of their industry. Clause 4, Part 4, was a household god for Labour, its 1918 commitment to destroy capitalism, which sat in a corner covered in cobwebs. Hugh Gateskill had wanted to abolish it, but had drawn back, and the ambition had slumbered for decades. Blair killed it. His new statement of aims began with the assertion that the Labour Party is a democratic socialist party, which by then was going it a bit. In his next conference speech, Blair used the word new 59 times, referred to socialism just once, and omitted to mention the working class at all. Though politics is a serious business, there is an undeniably comic side to the Blair coup. With his impish grin, he suddenly behaved as if everything was possible, and no political allegiance was impossible to shift. He became the playful magician of political life, he took to warmly praising Margaret Thatcher. He opened private talks with the Liberal Democrats about some grand new alliance of the centre. In Fleet Street, he took to charming every roomy proprietorial troll and crusty prophet of the right he could lay his smile on. Later, he would continue the practice in government, appointing Tory statesmen to big jobs, gleefully ushering in defectors, and keeping close for a while to the Lib Dem leader Paddy Ashdown and its elder statesman Roy Jenkins though he would later disappoint both by his conservatism. He went to visit Rupert Murdoch's News International team in Australia and impressed them too. What manner of man was this Tony Blair? Where did he stand? Where were his limits? There were not many. In the election campaign, the pro-European Blair cheerfully put his name to an article in Murdoch's Sun, 
ghost written by Campbell, promising to slay the dragon of federalism. Later relations would be so close that Murdoch would complain of the amount of time he wasted in London drinking tea with Blair and coffee with Brown. He searched out Lord Rothermere, proprietor of the Daily Mail, traditionally Labour's bitterest critic in the British press, and dined him privately, promising him that he abhorred high taxes, uppity unions and sleaze. It was as if, freed by winning the leadership, Blair was rattling the handle of every door in town to see if it opened. As he was on a roll and Labour was desperate to win at all costs, the traditionalist looked on in silent, helpless disbelief. Was nothing sacred? Apparently not. Yet when it came to serious policy formation, the story was less amusing. Blair talked of his priority being education, 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 of his ambition to make Britain a young country, and of his own belief in power for a purpose. He identified the broad areas he wanted to concentrate on, but when it came to clearer proposals, said little. Blair has been mocked so richly since for the airy blandness of his promises that it is worth recalling an example of the optimism-light rhetoric which was taken at least half seriously in 1997. A few early sentences from Labour's manifesto give a flavour of this. I believe in Britain. It is a great country with a great history. The British people are a great people. But I believe Britain can and must be better. Better schools, better hospitals, better ways of tackling crime, of building a modern welfare state, of equipping ourselves for a new world economy. I want a Britain that is one nation, with shared values and purpose, where merit comes before privilege, run for the many, not for the few, strong and sure of itself at home and abroad. I want a Britain that does not shuffle into the new millennium afraid of the future, but strides into it with confidence. Britain's would stride with a purpose, and in their hands they would hold New Labour's first pledge card, a credit card-sized rectangle of coloured cardboard. Produced in time for the election, its five pledges were rather clearer than the early rhetoric. In government, Labour would cut class sizes to 30 or below for five- to seven-year-olds by scrapping the assisted places scheme that helped people from poor families go to private schools. It would speed up punishment for persistent young offenders, halving the time from arrest to sentencing. It would cut health service waiting times by treating an extra 100,000 patients as a first step. Paid for by cutting red tape, the last resort of political accountancy. A quarter of a million young people would be put to work through a windfall tax on the privatised utility companies. There would be no rise in income tax rates and inflation and interest rates would be kept as low as possible. The last seemed entirely meaningless since no government has tried to raise inflation, but now seems like a coded reference to Gordon Brown's decision to hand control over interest rates to a committee of the Bank of England. Looking back, the pledge card revealed a lot about the strengths and weaknesses of new Labour. It was modest in promise and costed. Its promises, however, were so simple that they often turned out to be damaging in practice. The waiting times pledge was one example. And there was a yearning for numerical simplicity, all those suspiciously round numbers, which suggested the purpose of the pledges was propagandistic, not governmental, easy ideas to spoon into voters who could not be bothered to concentrate. Most damaging of all for a campaign which so relentlessly accused the Conservatives of deceit and destroying people's trust in politics, Labour made promises which it would promptly break when it won power. It promised not to privatise the air traffic control system, but did so. 
It promised not to levy tuition fees for students, and a year later did exactly that, and would repeat the trick with student top-up fees during the 2001 election. It promised an end to sleaze and to deception. It implied that the overall tax burden would not increase, yet it would. The most important pledges were the negative ones, coming from Brown and his Treasury team, that there would be no increase in rates of income tax, while for two years a new Labour government would stick to the Conservative spending totals. Those promises were stuck to, though there were big and unmentioned stings to come. But why were so many other pledges broken? Team Tony, the group who put together the new Labour project, were intelligent people who wanted to find a way of ruling which helped the worse off, particularly by giving them better chances in education and to find jobs, while not alienating the mass of middle-class voters. They exuded a strange, unstable mix of anxiety and arrogance. They were extraordinarily worried by newspapers. They were bruised by what had happened to Kinnock, whom they had all worked with. And ruthlessly focused on winning over anyone who could be won. Yet there was arrogance too. They were utterly ignorant of what governing would be like. The early success of Blair's leadership victory and his short time as opposition leader produced a sense that everything was possible for people of determination. If they promised something, no doubt it would happen. If they said something, of course it was true. They weren't Tories after all. The pity of all this was that they were about to take power at a golden moment, when it would have been possible to fulfil the pledges they had made, and when it was not necessary to give different messages to different people in order to win power. Blair had the wind at his back. The Conservatives would pose no serious threat to him for many years to come. Far from inheriting a weak or crisis-ridden economy, he was actually taking over at the best possible time when the country was recovering strongly. But had not yet quite noticed. Blair won by being focused and ruthless, and never forgot it. But he also had incredible historic luck, and never seemed to realise quite what an opportunity it gave him. Celebrity life, celebrity death. Tony Blair arrived in power in 1997 in a country spangled and sugar-coated by a revived fashion for celebrity. It offered a few politicians new opportunities, but at a high cost. The glamour industry had always been with us under different names, but had become supercharged during the 60s when rock stars, Hollywood actors, and television performers were fated by the tabloid press and a new generation of women's and urban magazines. Such interviews and profiles spread more widely during the 70s and 80s, but it was not until 1988 that the shape of the modern celebrity culture became fully apparent. That year saw the first of the true modern celebrity glosses in Britain when Hello magazine was launched on the 17th of May. It was the English language version of the Spanish magazine Hola, which had already made its owner Eduardo Sanchez Junco a multi-millionaire. Its success is often credited to the exotic Marquesa de Varela, who allegedly owns 200 dogs and has four luxury homes in Uruguay, as well as New York and London. The Hello formula would be copied by OK from 1993 and many other magazines, to the point where yards of coloured mimicry occupied newsagents' shelves in every town and village in the country. It sheds a sidelight on Britain's changing public culture. The essence of its sweetheart deal was that celebrities would be paid handsomely to be interviewed and photographed in return for coverage that was generally fawning and never hostile. 
hello, allowed the flawed famous to shun the mean-minded sniping of the regular press, while it scooped up access to the most famous names, time after time. The sunny, good-time, upbeat, airbrushed world of hello was much mocked. In the real world, the relentless optimism of its coverage of grinning couples and their lovely homes was inevitably followed by divorces, drunken rows, accidents and ordinary scandals. But it was hugely successful. People seemed happy to read good news about the famous and beautiful, even if they knew in their hearts there was more to it than that. In the same year as Hello arrived, 1988, the BBC put the Australian soap opera Neighbours into a prime tea-time slot. At its height, this show, which had been a failure on its home patch, was attracting 15 million British viewers. It, too, portrayed a youthful, sunny alternative to grey Britain, and its early stars, notably Kylie Minogue and Jason Donovan, went on to become celebrities themselves. In the same year as Hello and Neighbours, ITV launched the most successful of the daytime television shows, This Morning, hosted from Liverpool by Richard Maidley and Judy Finnegan, a live magazine programme of frothy features and celebrity interviews. Daytime television had existed since 1983, when BBC One's breakfast show with Frank Boff and Selena Scott arrived alongside the independent TVAM. These, though, were high-minded and mainstream compared to the more popular This Morning show, television's celebrity breakthrough moment. What did this celebrity fantasy world, which continued to open up in all directions in the media through the 90s, have to do with anything else? For one thing, it re-emphasised to alert politicians, broadcasting executives and advertisers the considerable, if recently unfashionable, power of optimism. Mainstream news in the 90s might be giving the British an unending stream of bleakness, burning cattle carcasses, awful murders and disasters on railway lines. Millions turned all the more urgently to celebrity. They did not think that celebrities had universally happy lives or always behaved well or did not age. But in celebrity land, everyone meant well. Everyone could forgive themselves and be forgiven, and there was always a new dawn breaking over the swimming pool. The celebrity who emoted, who was prepared to expose inner pain, enjoyed a land of power. And in 80s and 90s Britain, no celebrity gleamed more brightly than the beautiful, troubled Princess Diana. For 15 years she was an ever-present presence, as an aristocratic girl, no intellectual, whose childhood had been blighted by a bad divorce, her fairy tale marriage in 1981 found her pledging her life to an older man who shared few of her interests and did not seem to be in love with her. The slow disintegration of this marriage transfixed Britain, as Diana moved from China doll, whispery-voiced debutante, to painfully thin young mother, to increasingly charismatic and confident public figure working crowds and seducing cameras like a new Marilyn Monroe. As 80s fashions grew more exuberant and glossy, so did she. Her eating disorder, bulimia, was one suffered by growing numbers of girls. When she admitted later to acts of self-harm, she sounded like teenagers and young women in many less privileged homes. When plagues and cruelties of the age were in the news, she appeared as visual commentator, hugging AIDS victims to show that it was safe, or campaigning against landmines. Rumours spread of her affairs. Britain was now a divorce-prone country, in which what's best for the kids and I deserve to be happy were batted across kitchen tables. So Diana was not simply a pretty woman married to a king-in-waiting, but became a kind of Barbie of the emotions, who could be dressed up in the private pain of millions. 
People felt, possibly wrongly, that she would understand them. Her glance was as potent as the monarch's touch had once been for scrofula. A feverish, obsessive quality attached to her admirers, something not seen before by the royal family, who found all this uncomfortable and alarming. They were living symbols. She was a living icon. After the birth of her second son, Harry, in 1987, Diana's marriage was visibly failing. In 1992, the journalist Andrew Morton, to General Huffing, claimed to tell Diana the true story, in a book which described suicide attempts, blazing rows, her bulimia, and her growing certainty that Prince Charles had resumed an affair with his old love, Camilla Parker Bowles, something he later confirmed in a television interview with Jonathan Dimbleby. In the December after Morton's publication, John Major announced that Charles and Diana were to separate. A wily manipulator of the media, Diana became simultaneously a huntress in the media jungle, pursuing stories that flattered her, and the hunted, both haunted and haunting. Then came her revelatory 1995 interview on Panorama. Breaking every taboo left in royal circles, she freely discussed the breakup of her marriage. There were three of us. Attacked the Windsors for their cruelty and promised to be a queen in people's hearts. Finally divorced in 1996, she continued her charity work around the world and began a relationship with Dodi Al-Fayed, son of the owner of Harrods. To many, she was a selfish and unhinged woman, endangering the monarchy. To millions, her painful life story and her fashionable readiness to share that pain made her more valuable than formal monarchy. She was followed with close attention all round the world, her face and name a sure seller of papers and magazines. By the summer of 1997, Britain had two super-celebrities. One was Tony Blair, and the other was Princess Diana. It is therefore grimly fitting that Tony Blair's most resonant words as Prime Minister, and the moment when he reached the very height of his popularity, came on the morning when Diana was killed with Dodie in a Paris underpass after their car crashed. Blair had been woken from a deep sleep at his Trimden constituency home, first to be warned about the accident, and then to be told that Diana was dead. He was deeply shocked, and worried about what his proper role should be. After pacing round in his pyjamas and having expletive-ridden conversations with Campbell, Blair spoke to the Queen, who said that neither she nor any other senior would make a statement. He decided he had to say something. Later that morning, standing in front of his local church, looking shattered, and transmitted live around the world, he spoke for Britain. I feel, like everyone else in this country today, utterly devastated. Our thoughts and prayers are with Princess Diana's family, in particular her two sons, her two boys. Our hearts go out to them. We are today a nation in a state of shock. As he continued, his hands clenched, his voice broke, and he showed he understood why she achieved her special status. Her own life was often sadly touched by tragedy. She touched the lives of so many others in Britain and throughout the world with joy and with comfort. How many times shall we remember her in how many different ways, with the sick, the dying, with children, with the needy? With just a look or a gesture that spoke so much more than words, she would reveal to all of us the depth of her compassion and her humanity. End of Disc 19